Welcome to Voices on Art, the Van Horn Gallery podcast hosted by Daniela Steinfeld. I'm Daniela, and this podcast is about my personal and also about a lot of other people's enthusiasm for art. Art can touch on all parts of life, and therefore we talk about all parts of life. I hope to get you on board and to tell you interesting stories you enjoy listening to. For our international listeners, the podcast will be held mostly in English. We're recording via the internet, so please excuse any glitches and sound quality. Episode 46, recorded November 4, 2021. My guest today is artist Julieta Aranda, whose work dives into the depth of artistic exchange and subversion. She's also a contributor and editor of Eflux Journal and director of the online platform Eflux together with Anton Vidokel, with whom she collaborated on many different projects. Julieta has exhibited internationally, for example, at the Guggenheim Museum, Berlin Biennale, Venice Biennale, Documenta, and many more. Welcome, Julieta. Very nice to have you. Hi, Daniela. Thank you for having me. You were born and raised in Mexico in the late 70s. So what is your background? What were the influences that made you choose a path in the arts? I mean, my background is very, very far from art. Mm -hmm. and there was nothing in the alchemy of my history that would indicate that I was going to go to the art route. It was all a series of accidents. And what was the first accident? What was it when you suddenly felt like, oh, that's interesting? I, I always go back to the idea of the aesthetic experience. And mm -hmm. I remember when I was like a, like a very young child, I had this book of paintings, like art for children, basically. And I remember there were three paintings that gave me incredibly strong feelings. There were things I just had no words for. And uh, my family, there is like not a single artist in my family. So I, had, I, I would ask and they were like, oh my God, I, we don't even know what we're talking about. So it developed. I have gone to actually see those paintings live now. Um, later on, I was like, I need to find those paintings. I need to see them now and just understand and try to remap, you know, with all the understanding of actually having an art career to try to understand what I was feeling as a five-year-old when I looked at them. So that was a very profound, direct experience. Well, just to understand that an image, you know, the representation can produce that incredibly visceral experience on somebody, right? And how did your, did your family react? Did they support you in that? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> I wish. No. <laughs> So how did you carve your path and how, how, how could you do it then? I mean, it's a complicated story. I left my house at 14. Wow. And then I was working. I have many friends I, because I was very curious about art and all those things. I had become hanging out with people related to arts and filmmaking. And because I had left my house and I was like a runaway and some friends of mine that had kind of adopted me that I thought were like really grown-ups, but they were not. They were 30-year-olds, which in my mind were adults. They were like, okay, so there is this kid. So what do we do with her? Okay, so she needs to get a job. And they got me jobs on filmmaking. Do, I don't know, like go make photocopies kind of thing. And 
I don't know, over the course of a couple of years, I really grew into filmmaking and I developed a, a little path there. And I was actually doing art direction and art being a director's assistant for commercials and so on. And I thought I was going to be a filmmaker. Mm-hmm. And because I left home at 14, I never finished high school. So I thought maybe it's an idea to go to university by then I was 16. And I decided to take an equivalency test to prove that I knew everything that you should have learned in high school. So I did, which was a very good idea. And you passed? I passed, yes. It took some time. And then with the money that I had saved from working on film, I thought I was going to go and make a film, a science fiction film in New York. Why science fiction? Because I've always been interested in science fiction. That's that's what I what I grew up on and what I have been interested on since I'm a kid. So I wanted to make my science fiction film in New York. This is something that happens that you think about when you are 17. You know, I went to New York without knowing anybody in New York with the savings of two years working on film. And I got to New York really without knowing a single person. It's a funny story, but it's too long. Anyway, I did make the film and I still love it, even though it's a film made by a 17-year-old. Did you ever show it? Oh, I have shown it a number of times. The film got me, somebody that was working on the film was actually teaching stop motion at the School of Visual Arts in uh, New York City. And he liked the film and he showed it to the dean of the film department and I was offered the scholarship to go to film school. So I said, yes, I get scholarship. I got film school, yes. And then I stayed in New York and I went to film school. Now that you tell the story, it sounds like, yeah, I just left home at 14 and then I went to New York and then I went to film school. But it must have been, I mean... None of that was easy. Yeah. It fits in a sentence, but it, none of it was easy. Yeah. Do you think that paving your own way that this also shaped things that you did after this that that made you stronger and and more persistent i mean i don't know if it is about strong or persistent you know somebody says like the wisdom of scars is overestimated Mm -hmm. yeah i i don't romanticize it so much because sometimes i always wish that i hadn't had you know that you know like there are like the moments when you're like i really wish everything had been a little bit easier yeah I mean, I don't know. I mean, like, rather than say that because of this, I became stronger, I want to think that rather because I was already stronger, I was able to go through all of this. I mean, obviously, you can, as you may or may not imagine, like, I don't come from a wealthy family at all. And the truth of things is that the amount of people from countries outside the so-called Western world that managed to get an education outside of, like, whatever, you know, to do the kinds of things that I did, is usually people that have a better economical situation. What it has done for me is to make very clear that a lot of what I do with my work It's not paying a due, but taking care of making sure that whatever I do can make things easier for people that come from the same situation I came from, that want to 
follow this kind of trajectory, that they don't have to jump through so much, whomever comes after. You said once that you and also Anton, growing up outside of that Western standard society, that you're very aware of availabilities and access to certain resources, which people outside of that countries probably don't have. And probably that that awareness also led to the idea of including people of circulation, of generosity. Yeah, these are things that matter tremendously for me. I will never say that it has made me stronger because it's really a matter of luck. I don't feel particularly strong usually. If anything, the other way around, it's more that it has shaped what interests me, what I want my work to mean, how I want my work to operate, for whom do I want it to function, and what's behind the work, and what animates the work, who I want to see it, who I want to own it, that kind of thing. What really appealed to me was that you said at some point that you don't want to limit yourself to a predetermined geography and don't want to do like so-called Mexican art just because we, you come from Mexico. And I interpret that that this is like about a greater freedom and a greater space art can offer in the face of sometimes very limited ideas of society, identity, nationality, etc., etc., etc. So do you feel in your work that you are doing something very inclusive without closing it up? I tend to think in terms of like aboutness, yeah? The way I see it, yeah? Like the work that I make, it's always going to be Mexican work because I am Mexican. Mm -hmm. That's just the way it is. So I don't want to make claims, like historical claims or follow this kind of identity trends. I have never wanted this identity Trends were already very big in the late 90s. Now it's much better. Now it actually, it makes some sense, but I still think that there are ways to approach the subjects without laying claim to those stories. I mean, I have grown in three places. I have complicated stories. My life has been in three parts. One third of my life is in Mexico. One third of my life is in New York. One third of my life is in Berlin. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I could make work about the U.S. in the same way I could make work about Germany or in the same way I could make work about Mexico, you choose. Mm -hmm. Or I can say, instead of being of my place, I can say, a lot of my work has to do with time, yeah? So if somebody asks me, where am I from? I would say, I am of my time. So I make work where I respond very sincerely and very deeply and very as profoundly as I can to that. Yeah, like I am of my time. I do the work that my time requires. I don't mean my personal time. I mean like the, the zeitgeist, like the, the space, the moment where I live, where I feel it's needed, where I feel it's journey, where I feel needs to be addressed. And I think that's irrespective of geography. I don't mean it in the sense that I follow fashions. I mean, my work is a little bit dark. and. It's because I tend to always try to find that thing that needs to be talked about, like the elephants in the room. Yeah, I'm always like, okay, what's the elephant now? Let me find that elephant in the room. I'm going to go after that elephant. And you also said that each work says what medium and material it wants to be done in. Yeah. You always listen to the work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I call myself a sculptor. Yeah, I come from filmmaking, but I call myself a sculptor. 
And I, I think of everything I do as a sculptor, even though I'm not trained in sculptor, because there is something about an idea comes and then I have to let the idea unfold and then think, okay, what does this need to be? Is it sound? Is it image? Is it three-dimensional? What is it? And then sometimes it requires something I don't even know. And then I have to train myself on that in order to be able to make the work. That has happened a couple of times. You also said you consider time as a material, like a sculptural material. Yes. Could you explore a little bit more about the works you did about time or what time means in that case as a material? It has become a lot more, let's say, I've been working with time for, for a while, yes. Yeah? So now, now it's a bit more like easier to talk about it. It's both subject and material, right? Because when you're working with time, you want the work to unfold in its own substance. If you're talking about either geological time or time that is not simultaneous, because the time, you know, like the way that I perceive time is probably very different from the way that somebody in a remote elsewhere experiences time or from the way an animal experiences time. So if I want to make those experiences of time somehow visible or somehow understandable, I need to think of time as something that I can somehow work with in order to make understandable. Yeah. So that's when it becomes material. It's like, how can I make you see the time of a monkey? Not even see, you know, I don't know the time of a monkey, but how can I make you try to imagine the time of a monkey? Or how can I make you try to understand a time elsewhere, a time otherwise? And that means try to sculpt with ideas to try to shape around time. I have driven myself crazy. I was doing a work about infinity and Aleph some years ago. It had to do with monkeys. That's why I was talking with monkeys. It had to do with monkeys and typewriters. How does that go together? There is a saying that it's called the infinite monkey theorem. It's a mathematical principle that says that if you would give a typewriter to a monkey for infinite time, for eternity, eventually that monkey would type every single possible work of literature, amongst many other things, right? He would type everything possible. And it's a theorem that's used to explain the difference between possibility and probability. I was very interested in that because at some point, The scientist gave six um, Sulawesi macaques a type a computer to see what would happen. And what happened is that in the space of a month, the monkeys destroyed the computer, but they managed to type five pages of text. And I got those five pages. And the text is mostly the letter S. So I have been working with the text for a while. And I have made a lot of work around it. And then I got incredibly asking myself, you know, why the letter S? What does it mean? What does this text mean? And I was driving myself, I mean, like crazy in esoteric, philosophical, really poetic conclusions. I mean, with that particular work, it was very philosophical, esoteric. I was like, oh my God, this is what St. Augustine must have been feeling when he was asking what is time and so on. Some works are like that. Other works are, every work is different. 
And then you also described in some texts as like a conceptual artist, but you always talk about, you know, you walk the city or you meet people and then ideas come yeah. or you record your own heartbeat. I am not a conceptual artist. Yeah, I feel it's very much related to your body. Body at least plays a role, or am I mistaken? Living in a real body, experiencing real space. I don't know if my body plays a role. Heartbeat has meant a lot to me, like because it's like a clock. Mm -hmm. And it's time also. It ticks yeah. away. Yeah. I think being called a conceptual artist has to do with my generation and the kind of work people have been doing. So it's easy to be lumped with that. And I, I, you know, I'm too lazy to fight labels. I would never describe myself as a conceptual artist because I want my work to bring more than concepts. And I want my work to be like a lot more visceral and to produce the kind of thing that those paintings I was telling you that like really made a big impression to me. Like I want my work to do that. Mm. You want that there's more than just an intellectual response. There's an emotional response, for example. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, like I want that, you know, like that it's possible to read more into the work that to make channels available there to to speak about more than just intellectual poems and to leave it open for responses that go beyond people that can be in on the joke. The hardest thing, I think, to talk for the podcast, to talk with artists, because actually, as you say, art is something, probably it's an aesthetic experience or it's an emotional or intellectual or, it, it's, or a visceral experience, But it's very hard to pin it down with words. So actually what we do is always talking around, talking about intentions or trying to use poetic words to describe certain things. Of course, it's not a direct thing. It's like I want to make a word that is not entirely gesture dependent. Like how can I get beyond the gesture and how can I also work With layering, you know, like if somebody wants to read the work at a conceptual, like smart level, there is a reading there, of course, and I can, you know, I provide that. But there are also things underneath that become the material that somebody could relate to, respond to, read into. I'm not afraid of emotions. I'm not afraid of like sentimental work. I'm a super sentimental person. You don't want your work to be labeled? You yourself don't want to be labeled and you're quite open to any interpretation that people would put into a work? No, not exactly. Not exactly. Not exactly. I mean, like in the sense that, um, how to say, yeah, I have never managed to figure out the kind of artist I am because I don't know if movements is the thing. I'm very bad at following that kind of like zeitgeist. Mm -hmm. Like now we all need to do this and we are all going to be ecological artists or we are all going to be doing work about text or things that don't exist. And you see it always happening in groups. Yeah, I tend to be against working in that way. I don't know if it's like about being open for interpretation. And it's not about being against interpretation. Yet. It's like about keeping open like a prerogative for freedom. And mm -hmm. I felt this very strongly For the 10 years I have been read like my Wikipedia entry and it's like, forget that and it's a conceptual artist, like since mm -hmm. when? For me, it has always been much more important to work with time, to shape the feeling around time and to give kind of like form to things that are a little bit dark, that are hard to name. 
Mm-hmm. And how did it come about that you decided to not always, you work also alone, but um, very often to collaborate or to include people in your works and also to do this Eflux platform with Anton? Eflux just, it's something that uh, has been going on for a long time now and that a lot of it was like has been synergy between Anton and me. We have been very close for a long time and we are just two people that think very good together. Communication between us is super easy. When we started the Deflux, the image of what it is now didn't exist. It has developed into what it is. And you let it just develop. As needed, you know. It's like when you say, okay, we need another room for the house or I need another pair of pants or my child needs new shoes. As it grows, you cater to it. Does that mean you also follow the lead life gives you? In that sense, yeah. I mean, it's like follow the lead and anticipating what that lead would be, yeah. I don't know if follow the lead or try to lead life or try to understand what is the next thing before it manifests or trying to read the signs. I mean, like, I don't know if Eflux could have happened without the kind of synergy and communication that Anton and I have mm-hmm. that I can't even explain. I mean, Anton is probably one of the most intelligent people that I know, but our conversation is not entirely intellectual when we speak, yeah? Like, we know each other for so long. It goes through all kinds of registers, and many things have come from jokes or things, or you see a ritornello, a figure, an image that keeps repeating in the conversation. It's like, wait a second, let's go for that. What is that? We have been talking about that for so long. I mean, it's not straight paths, yeah? No, never. I mean, never ever. L- life does not function like that at all. Collaboration to me is important, maybe because I studied filmmaking. And also, you know, when there is something that I need to do alone, I, I do it alone. Yes, exactly. And where do you make the difference? I mean, is that very clear to you always that you say, yeah, that is yeah, an yeah, alone yeah, yeah, yeah. project and that must be done with people? It's always completely clear. I can't explain to you why or how. It's just a feeling, just like you just know. A project just like would say, okay, this is a project to do with people and something else is a project where I don't need to answer any questions because I don't even know how to answer the questions to myself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I have driven people crazy. Yeah. Like <laughs> I can't write grant applications because people, people always want to know when you ask for money for something, people always want to know what it is that you are going to do. That's very hard to say. Yeah. And to me, it's like, if I knew what I wanted to do, then I would not need to do it. I can talk super eloquently about all of my past projects. I can tell you everything that they mean, why I took every step of the way. Yeah. I don't want to have those answers before I have started a project. Because if I have those answers, then the project is predetermined. And I am not doing anything new. And I'm not, letting, I'm not letting things happen. I already gave everything boundaries and I decided everything in advance. So, you know, every time somebody, like a curator asks me, what are you going to do for the show? It's like, I try to give answers and they are back. They're like, but what are you saying? And I'm like, I don't want to put words to this because the moment I put words, I will attach myself to those words. So I'm letting, you know, I'm letting the words speak to me and I'm letting the words live outside of language. Are those the moments of magic you're talking about? 
to me, yes, you know, I mean, I'm very good with words. I can write, I can speak. And the moment when I need to make, I don't make that much work. I make work only when I have to. And when I don't have words anymore to explain what it is that I want to do, when language is not enough, that's when I know I need to make a work. So this is why you're also actually talking a lot, because that's what you're doing when you're not making a work for which yeah. there is no language. Yeah. I mean, like I talk, I write, I deal with language. And, and when something goes beyond language, it's like, I can't hold you thing. I don't know how to get to you. Then that merits making a work. That can't be explained. And I make the work also to explain it to myself. Mm -hmm. So the, the, I mean, like the trick I have, and I shouldn't say it, but I'll say it. <laughs> the trick I have to ask for a grant, it doesn't work anyway. I never get grants. But the trick I have for it, at least, pretend to apply for a grant, is to describe a work I have already made. And then I think, well, if I get the grant, I will say I changed the project in between. It's, it's like following your nose, you know, like I'm following something and I think, okay, if I put it into words and that's my methodology and that's the result I want to achieve. It's like saying, I know what the work's going to be and I will not let it become this, this messy thing that can leak through, that can become like anything, you know. I have work that has asked me to be a clock. I have work that has wanted to be a machine. I have had work that required me to learn to dive, work that I, I needed to make everything in ceramics. I mean, like it, I just need to get into a deep understanding of the subject matter. And the process to do that, I mean, what is this voice or how does that come to you that you know, yeah, that has to be made in ceramics. And for that, I have to do like whatever uh, zero gravity flight. And for that, I have to do that. What's the process, your inner process? It's a lot of it has to do with separating myself from language. You know, it's, it's complicated. I make things super complicated for myself. I don't know why. So every time I am about to make a work, I start by putting all my concepts together, the things that I'm curious about. And then I forget what those words mean and I make definitions for them again. And then once I have made that from those definitions, I start looking and listening and being, okay, what do you want to be? You know, And, and then something would say, I am fragile and I want to be ceramics, yeah? Mm -hmm. Or spider webs or zero gravity or apples or, you know, like whatever becomes the material. Right now I have a concept in mind, for example. One of the things I am circling in my mind is um, hostile architecture. I mean, like hostile architecture already has some materiality, of course, and I have used it in my work tangentially. What exactly do you mean with hostile architecture? If you're in a city street and you look into a building and you see these spikes so that the birds don't sit in, mm. or those benches in the airport that have armrests so people cannot lay down to sleep, or these like spikes on the roads so that homeless people cannot sit down. So that's like a kind of hostility in public space. 
I mean, there is some materiality to that hostility, and I have already worked with it a little bit. And that's what I made in, in ceramics and glass. I made replicas of a lot of those things in very fragile materials. So like the opposite. Yeah, I wanted it to be broken, of course. Yeah. But it took a lot of time to understand, you know, like what material I needed. And I, I could not even explain, you know, like it only became clear afterwards. I know I'm not done with that topic, for example, mm-hmm. but I don't want to repeat that. So it has to have a different angle? Yeah, I'm waiting a little bit for it to tell me what it wants to be. That is one of the projects you're listening to right now. Yes. But you also have some projects which involve other people or where you, you can use language again. Yeah. Like, for example, be named a curator for Art Basel. What, what does that mean? Curator is a big word. No, I'm not a curator. They asked me to organize uh, part of their conversations program. And that's something I can do. I'm good at that, putting people together to discuss topics. I always ask people to come together to discuss topics I'm super interested on, and that becomes part of my artistic research. So you consider this part of your, of your work? Everything you do is part of your work? Yeah, yeah, it all fits of each other. I mean, it's not like, you know, I'm a, I'm a heart surgeon and also a plumber. Things are not so separate. <laughs> like, of course, you know, like if I make a conversation... It tends to be about topics that deeply interest me, that deeply resonate with what I do. And it becomes an opportunity for me to listen and to put people together and to listen to exchanges that otherwise would not take place and see if some magic happens there. Mm-hmm. It often does. Sometimes you just have to have an open space to let the magic happen. And what are those topics? You're interested in time, you're interested in science fiction and all these things. Are there some other topics that you're really curious about? I'm not so interested in science fiction anymore, for example. Because you worked about this already. I've worked about it for a long time. And I see it operating right now in an incredibly seductive way. And I see it becoming complicit with greenwashing. So greenwashing is something I'm working on, like the underbelly of ecology. Explain a little bit more. I care a lot about things that I'm working on. I'm working in ways that I can't explain to you yet. I'm working with the, the right to repair, like the idea that you can fix things and that you can fix things and make them work again and keep fixing them and you don't need to get new things. And how... Technological advances, planned obsolescence is part of the deal, that you will need to replace the thing again soon. So I am like, no, I want to fix my washing machine. I want to mend my clothes. I want to glue things. I want to, you know, use things until they are really, really, really broken. So that's something in a lot of appliances and things, they make them so you cannot fix them so that you need to get a new one if something breaks. And there is a movement against it that's called uh, the right to repair, that you actually can't fix your thing, that you have the right to say, no, I don't want to buy a new one. I want to fix this one. So that's something I'm working with. Mm -hmm. Those are ecological movements, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like society movements, but the language of art, it's a different language. Mm Mm-hmm. I don't know yet. Two of the things I'm interested with now 
have to do with language. Like one is right to repair, which is a little bit like language. And the other one is really language. I have the name for it, it's terms and conditions. And it has to do with all the times that we have to read disagreements and click I agree, I agree when we're going to a website and when we have to update our software and just click I agree and you never read it. Nobody does. No. So I'm trying to work with that. And I don't know what it's going to be. It's not language. I understand that the projects that are not there yet, you're just planning that there is really no language for you to describe that. So this is why I'm not asking for a description. But what is the difference in making art about these topics and being an activist? I also do activism, right? I keep them very separately. I have done activism for a long time in many different topics. It's just I don't consider my activism art. These things I'm concerned with, like and getting washing included, and my skepticism about the ecological bandwagon that does not care for people. I could go for a long time there. As I told you, I'm always looking for the underbelly, whatever is the dark aspect of something. That's kind of like my self-assigned job. If there is something there, I'm going to look for. The, yeah, it's underbelly. I, I can't explain. That's just what I do. And with these things, I see that it shapes us into something. The way I see is like every time we say, I agree, I agree, I agree, is like, like if we're wrapping ourselves like mummies into some kind of web, yeah? I see that as like a very material thing. Yes, I agree, I agree, I agree. You can take my information. Yes, yes, you can do this. And it's not that I'm against it. It's I just like see cocoons forming. I see something very physical there. Mm -hmm. because I get almost like a physical sense, I'm like, okay, this is something I can work with. And there are people doing like right to repair activism. I don't want to go there. I am thinking about more like what are the things that I can repair and how, and what does repair mean? And there is a leap there between repair and reparation. And what does it mean to fix things that have happened in the past? And if I have the right to repair my machine, I also have the right to repair my past. I also have the right to repair my history. I have the right to reparations for things that have been done wrong. And it just opens up. Is the right to repair the past the right to rewrite the past? No, 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 no. But the repair is like something, you know, like when something that has been done wrong, yeah? Mm -hmm. When I think about it, yeah, like a right to repair, like history, for example, yeah? It's not, I would never want to rewrite history in the sense that I would not ever want to take one history and put it on top of another because that's not interesting. But what is interesting is to say there are many histories. So there is this and then there is also this and like simultaneities in the same way that you could have 20 different washing machines, you could have 20 different histories. And you could fix a washing machine from 1920. And there the aspect of time comes in again. Yeah. And also like for me, like the thinking of people say that there is money laundering. And I always think about time laundering. How can we make time good? How can we clean up time? These are my favorite places where I don't have the words because maybe I deny myself the words because I want the work. 
to answer this? Because in the moment you understand it, you cannot make the work. I don't need to. Mm -hmm. You don't need to. Yeah, I have an answer. I can write a text then. I think that's a very good explanation why art needs to be made. Yeah, it's like I always say, when I don't have the language for something, when it becomes bigger than my words, then it needs to be made. Thank you so much, Julieta. Thank you, Daniela. This was beautiful. For more information on Voices on Art, the Van Horn Gallery podcast, follow us on Instagram at Voices on Art and at van underscore horn underscore Düsseldorf. Visit our website van-horn.net and subscribe to Voices on Art on Spotify, Apple Podcasts or the platform of your choice. Thank you for listening to Voices on Art, the Van Horn Gallery podcast hosted by Daniela Steinfeld. Stay tuned and connect. <laughs>